0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you
1: are listening live.
2: Good afternoon and good evening. It is the 28th of February, 22, and I am James A. Fury, your host for the next hour on the Late Late Show for Teachers Talk Radio, coming to you live from Wisconsin in the United States. Today I'll be speaking with English teacher, classics defender, and host of Canna Chat from Massachusetts, Matt Ryan. Stay tuned and remember to call or text in with any questions you might have for myself or Matt. Be with you all soon. Henry Reichman, author of censorship and selection, issues and answers for schools, defines book censorship as the removal, suppression, or restricted circulation of literary, artistic, or educational material of images, ideas, and information on the grounds that these are morally or otherwise objectionable in the light of standards applied by the censor. In her culture wars in America, and encyclopedia of issues, viewpoints, and voices, Cynthia Miller states that censorship is the regulation of speech or other forms of expression by an entrenched authority. Further, she states that proponents of censorship want to act as a kind of safeguard for society, typically to protect norms and values. She writes that censorship suppresses what is considered objectionable from a political, moral, or religious standpoint. The Marshall University Libraries and their research on banned books in the U.S. defined a banned book as one which has been removed from a library classroom, et cetera. A challenge book as having been requested to be removed from a library classroom, et cetera. According to Miller, the use of book bannings highlights the tension between parental authority and society but it is ultimately about defining American value. So, what gets a book banned? In reports from the Office of Intellectual Freedom, three reasons were cited for censorship above all others. One, the material was considered to be sexually explicit. Two, the material contained offensive language. And three, the material was unsuited for a certain age group. These reasons are perhaps unsurprising to anyone who's followed these matters closely Despite First Amendment rights which protect speech over the centuries of America's existence, people have often attempted to keep materials which they consider to be objectionable out of the hands of those who would read them. In October 1650, for instance, William Pynchon's The Meritorious Price of Our Redemption was burned at the hands of the Puritan government in Boston, Massachusetts. Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, published in 1859, caused controversy at the time of its publication, with many religionists proclaiming it to be an attempt to dethrone God. Though Darwin's book went uncensored for a long time when the United States schools began to use it as curricular material in the 1920s, it faced multiple challenges in court, most notably in Tennessee where it was banned until six, 1967 when the Supreme Court ruled the ban unconstitutional, being in conflict with both the First and Fourteenth Amendments. That the impetus for this ban was the availability of the book to school children echoes much of our current book banning woes. On March 3rd, 1873, under the administration of Ulysses S. Grant, the Comstock Law was passed This act allowed for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. The act criminalized the use of the postal service to send items such as erotica, contraceptive information, and even personal letters alluding to any sexual content or information. The act was made impossible, the spread of information in medical journals regarding things such as contraceptives or abortion. Back to Massachusetts. In 1881, in Boston, publishers of Walt Whitman's collection of poetry, Leaves of Grass, faced criminal prosecution due to the use of explicit language in some poems. In perhaps the first instance of the Streisand effect, wherein banned works achieved great popularity, Leaves of Grass was published in Philadelphia, eventually going through five editions of 1,000 copies each and selling out on its first day. In 1885, Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is published in Massachusetts and quickly banned by librarians, Twain's book, of course, still faces challenges of banning due to its supposed racially insensitive themes and the use of the N-word by its characters. In the 20th century, more and more books became in danger of censorship due to certain literary and aesthetic aspects of the artistic movement of the time. Modernist writers such as James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and John Steinbeck each became the center of controversy at various points of that century. James Joyce in particular becomes an important figure in all this, his Ulysses having faced censorship since even before his book was published in 1922 on grounds of, according to Random House attorney Morris Ernst, one, the work contained sexual titillation, especially in Molly Bloom's soliloquy and had unparlor like language. Two, it was blasphemous, particularly in its treatment of the Roman Catholic Church. And three, it brought to the surface coarse thoughts and desires that usually were repressed. These attributes were perceived as a threat to long-held and dearly cherished moral, religious, and political beliefs. In short, it was subversive of the established order. On December 6, 1933, Judge John M. Woolsey issued his decision that stated Ulysses was not pornographic, humorously stating that whilst in many places the effect of Ulysses on the reader undoubtedly is somewhat emetic, nowhere does it tend to be an aphrodisiac. Ulysses then is deemed officially not obscene and allowed to be published in the United States. Though this decision was appealed in United States v. one book entitled Ulysses by James Joyce, this appeal ultimately failed, leaving further publication of the book free to proceed. The significance of the original trial and the appeal ruling cannot be overstated. Because of these, the precedent was set that for a court to apply obscenity standards, they should consider one, the work as a whole, not just selected excerpts, two, the effect of an average rather than overly sensitive person, and three, contemporary community standards. These standards ultimately came to influence the US Supreme Court's case law on obscenity standards. So after the Ulysses Wars, it becomes much easier for books containing controversial subject matter and language to make their way into the hands of US citizens. But the battle over book censorship wages on, largely fought between parents and parents' groups and the school or libraries who had allowed these works to land in the hands of students. In the US Supreme Court case, Island Trees School District versus Pico in 1982, a school board removed certain books it deemed inappropriate. The court came to the conclusion that. First Amendment imposes limitations upon a school board's discretion to remove books from middle and high school libraries, stating that local school boards may not remove books from school library shelves simply because they dislike the ideas contained in those books. Justice William Brennan, who wrote the opinion, reasoned that local school boards have broad discretion in the management of school affairs, but such discretion must be exercised in a manner that comports with the transcendent imperatives of the First Amendment. He goes on to argue that school boards do have absolute discretion to choose academic materials as long as that discretion is, quote, exercised in a narrowly partisan or political manner. The definition for what constitutes a narrowly partisan or political manner continues to be argued in courts and in the public consciousness still today, with calls to ban everything from To Kill a Mockingbird to Gender Queer to Mouse and, yes, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Today on my show, I'll be speaking with someone who has passionately voiced his strong opinions on book banning and censorship. Massachusetts English teacher Matt Ryan. As always, if you'd like to call or talk to myself, uh, you can text in questions to Teachers Talk Radio on the Podbean app, and we'll be happy to speak with you. After these ads, I'll be speaking with Matt about his background as a teacher, what led him to his opinions on the matter of censorship, the importance of classical literature, and something called Canon chat. Please stay tuned.
3: Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Arc Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, uplear
1: Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com.
3: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion, www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future.
2: Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to The Late Late Show with me, James A. Fury, as your host. I'm very excited to bring to you a discussion with my fellow English teacher, Matt Ryan. Matt, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, James. Thanks for having me. All
2: right. Well, it's nice to talk to you. We've been uh, kind of chatting back and forth on Twitter for, I don't know, I think two years or so. And uh, I've, I've actually was surprised a, a few months ago, I listened to you on another podcast, and I wasn't quite sure how you would sound. And uh, here you are. Uh, <laughs> here, so.
0: Great. Yeah, it's always interesting when you try to match up someone's voice with their picture. Uh, it sometimes matches okay. and other times it doesn't. So
2: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always tried to pride myself on not having the, the standard Wisconsin accent. Uh, but every once in a while, when I say Minnesota or Ope. <laughs> it comes out. I'm like, yep, there, there it is.
0: <laughs> we'll see if any of uh, any of Boston accent seeps into my uh, dialogue here.
2: All right, I will, I will attempt, I will try my <laughs> best not to not to slip into it myself. All right. Well, uh, as I said in my introduction, I wanted to get uh, into the issues of censorship and related ideas uh, with you. Um, but before we do that, uh, I was wondering if you could just maybe give a short history of how you came to be where you are today. How you started teaching. Um, you know what sort of school you teach in and what really made you so impassioned about the issues of the canon and censorship
0: sure uh thank you um so i'm a high school teacher in in massachusetts as you indicated uh, my first year was in 1999 which feels like forever ago now um, my students are shocked when i tell them that i have began teaching in 1999 um, i currently teach at a suburban co-ed catholic high school uh, but I've also worked... Uh, I started at a suburban public school. I've worked at an urban all-boys Catholic school. Uh, so I have a little bit of a mixed background when it comes to teaching. Um, yeah, and, and my passion for for canon and classics just comes from, well, my personally, my own history of reading. Uh, the English teachers I had myself as a student in high school, I I, I think I assumed that all English teachers Were like the teachers that I had myself as a student, and I quickly realized that wasn't the case. Um, And so, as I started to uh, become more active in social media and Twitter, I was seeing some things that were kind of like dismaying me, um, including at times almost like a complete dismissal of classic books and these by English teachers, and it, it really kind of shocked me. And so. I think after stewing and, you know, growing frustrated over this, I just decided to take a proactive um, move and start Canon Chat, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point during this show.
2: Definitely. Um, Yeah, Twitter can definitely be one of those. uh, It's a double-edged sword where you meet people that have almost the exact same interests as you, uh, maybe that you don't meet locally. uh, But then on the other hand, you do, you know, meet those that seem almost opposed to everything that you are passionate about. Um, so I've, I've gone through that same experience myself. Um, sure. I'm going to jump right into the book banning censorship issue. Um, I read in my intro, you know, a short bit about the history of censorship in America. Uh, and unfortunately, as we all know, these issues have not stayed uh, in the dustbins of history, but rather continue to rear their head from time to time, um, probably right now more than uh, any time in my life, or at least since I've been paying attention. Um, why do you think this argument needs to be litigated over and over again? In other words, why aren't we over this stuff by now, the book banning the censorship of, you know, controversial materials?
0: Yeah. Well, I loved listening to that essay, first of all, because if we think back to all those specific examples that you gave, were any of them the right decision? (laughs) I think it's pretty clearly the answer is no. It's, it seems almost absurd um, to listen to all these different examples and and that's, that that alone should, I think, be a good teaching lesson for all of us. Like censorship, first of all, it never really works. It's not that effective, and ultimately, uh, when we look back on these decisions, they're almost always incorrect. Um, so the fact that we're still litigating this now is 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 it's shame on us, right? You think we would have we should we should know better by now? Um, I think the other thing that really surprised me was I thought. <laughs> you know, we're, we're so divided on so many different issues, you know, left and right when it comes to education and other things. But I really thought this was one area that both sides could agree on. I really thought we could simply agree that book banning is a bad thing. Um, and Twitter quickly, uh, taught me that that's not the case. And we see arguments from people on both sides of the aisle, right and left, arguing for bans, um, Usually for different reasons, and usually the the targets of the bans are different, but they're both participating in this this war of censorship. That's really foolish at this point.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It does seem that everybody does propose that they are, you know, proponents of free speech and that they, they don't want to ban books until they hit that one edge case that really triggers them to all of a sudden saying we'll get that out of the library. Um, right. It does seem both sides end up. Um converging on the idea of censorship, but not converging on what books should be censored. <clears throat> um, I've actually seen you know you've you've spoken quite a lot about this on on Twitter, uh, and I've been interested to see how much pushback sometimes you you get for this regarding censorship or removal. Um, and I think that people uh, maybe have a hard time getting your, um, what your belief is specifically about, uh, you know, certain cases. Uh, so can you give me a description of what you believe constitutes censorship versus just curricular change? Cause I know I've seen different people argue to you that actually what's happening is they're just removing the book from the curriculum. They're not telling kids they can't read it. So what's the big deal with that?
0: Right. And I think part of that is just like a rhetorical game, right? So if you can, if you can avoid the, the, the buzzwords like banned and censorship, Uh, then it makes it much easier to make these decisions. Um, I'm all for individual teachers or teachers working collectively um, at the school level in creating a curriculum that works for them. Um, That's what we do as teachers. And of course, time is limited, so we can't teach everything. Uh, My issue is when a teacher is specifically told that they can't teach a certain book, especially in response to complaints coming outside of the school. So I've seen this kind of slippery slope argument that, well, the book is still available in the library, so it's not banned, students still have access to it. But that's not acceptable. Um, My job as a teacher when I'm teaching uh, books to my students is to use my experience and my expertise to guide them through text, some texts that are really dense and difficult to understand. And if I'm told I can't teach a certain text simply because, and you listed some of the examples that people use, um, there's something mm-hmm. in it that's objectionable, but it's still available in the library. Well, that, that that's not acceptable to me. I, I just don't think that's a valid reason. So this idea of Um, it's just saying, well, we're not censoring. We're just simply making curriculum decisions. Well, I I, I don't think that's a a serious argument because of course, every, every school, every teacher makes curriculum decisions, but we, we, we do them and we make them for, for many different reasons. Um, but I think we know when we're practicing censorship ourselves, um, and we should do everything we can to avoid doing that.
2: Sure. And oftentimes the argument doesn't really even stay in the classroom, you know, uh, they'll say, well, it's not in the classroom, so they still have it available in the library, but then next thing you know, they want to remove from the libraries too. And, you know, it ends up becoming, uh, really a, an example of a slippery slope. Um, right. There was seems a, to be.
0: sorry, there was a, no, a the, Bur- the Burbank, California school system, I think is a, a great recent example, uh, where the superintendent, um, uh, made a blanket policy that teachers were not allowed to teach or assign to their students any book containing the n-word. Uh, but they could keep it in their classroom and it could be shelved in the library as th- as though that's an acceptable that's an acceptable response. I think any any teacher, any English teacher should you know speak up against that because just any, first of all, blanket policies are rarely. Uh, good policies. Exactly. Um, but it really is just a sneaky way, um, to, to practice censorship without naming it as such.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I think conversation about, uh, you know, these, these different books definitely, uh, helps in the matter of whether or not the use of certain words are object- objectionable or not. Uh, for instance, I think in, in the narrative of the life of, um, Echiano, I I cannot pronounce his first name, but I think that he probably has instances of the N-word in that book, and that's a historical, you know, semi-historical document from the perspective of somebody who was sold into slavery, so I don't think that very many people could make a solid argument for not allowing that in in, in a classroom, whereas they seem to make the same sort of specious arguments for keeping um, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn out of the classroom. And so again, it seems kind of slippery the the way that people decide what is and is not okay. Yeah,
0: I agree. Um, Absolutely.
2: So I want to kind of get to maybe some of these more edge cases. Um, I think a lot of the examples of um, book banning are egregious examples of this sensorial attitude, sort of like, the banning of *Mouse* or the story of Ruby Bridges—I think those are pretty clearly beyond the pale. I, I don't know too many people that would really argue that they should be banned, although they have been. Uh, yep. But there are certain other edge cases, uh, and I'm thinking particularly of the book *Gender Queer* here, um, which some people are just a little bit less queer on. I know that that was a big controversy in uh, conservative circles. Are you familiar with the *Gender Queer* controversy?
0: Uh, I, I've seen it on Twitter and I've followed it a little bit, so I think I'm i'm fairly i'm I'm fairly comfortable with with the discussion, yes,
2: okay, so not to put you on the spot uh, sure. or, or anything like that, but is there is the argument more difficult to make for keeping something like that in a school versus the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, or would you just maybe apply a different standard to the argument uh, in order to answer that question
0: right I think it probably is, and I think. In many respects, maybe this is just a cop-out, but I really think I have to hold hard and fast and firm to my position that we shouldn't be banning or censoring books in the classroom. Because once we start making exceptions for books that we personally have a an issue with, then we open that door, even if it's just a crack, for others to make arguments against books that we feel are important to teach or for students to learn. So, yeah, I'm not comfortable with any of it, and, I, and I've said this over and over again on Twitter. I'll, I, I've defended um, books that I have, that I think very little of, books that I have no interest in reading myself. But I think if you're going to hold a principled stance on a position, you have to be willing to allow things that individually we may not be comfortable with. Uh, and so that's how, how I think I, I would respond to those those um, issues with, with that particular book.
2: So I'm just going to attempt to summarize uh, your, your stance sure. here, because I think I'm, I'm hearing um, exactly what you're saying, but I just want to make sure that I got this. Sure. Right. So your, your stance is pretty much that if outside pressure is placed on teachers to remove something from the curriculum, that should just be a blanket, no, we're not going to do it. Um, But if the teacher and their team discuss a work and they decide that it is of value and that they want to place it on the curriculum, uh, even if it's a controversial book, then they should be allowed to do that. But if they don't find it to be a valuable work, then they want to keep it out. It's really the outside, the the pressure from outside uh, that you seem to be most, um, most against.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair recap of my position. And I would also say I think schools need to do a better job about being transparent about what we teach and why. Uh, Because I also understand why uh, parents and parents groups are pushing back um, because I just don't think we necessarily do the best job at uh, at transparency at times. Uh, And also as kind of like an addendum, I would also say individually if parents feel that their child um, should not be um, taught a certain book I'm absolutely open to working individually with that parent to find an alternative i don't think however I don't think parents should dictate policies for everyone else's children I think that's where it becomes a little that be, that then that's when it becomes problematic
2: okay yeah I think that's a pretty clear line too you know a lot of teachers are used to in practice doing that you know where Um, you know, someone will have uh, an issue with their kid learning a specific book. So then we come up with alternative assignments for them to do. And that's pretty common practice. Right. So I'm going to transition just a little bit um, from the issue of censorship. I think we've already touched on this actually a little bit, uh, but to the idea of cancel culture. So just broadening the conversation out a little bit. um, Would you consider yourself to be anti-cancel culture?
0: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I, I would. That's where I would put myself.
2: Okay. So I'm going to just play devil's advocate for a few questions on cancel culture uh, and just you tell me what you think. Uh, So you've spoken out against public cancellations in the past. I've seen it um, in, in relation to the Dave Chappelle controversy, the Kate Clanchy uh, controversy. I think you commented on that as well. Um, Those that argue for deplatforming of those two and other figures like them would probably argue that their campaigns to get them to face consequences are really just practicing their own right to free speech. In other words, they're they're vetoing their appearances somewhere by pressuring these institutions. And that's really just their own free speech. You know, these institutions aren't necessarily um, held to having to cancel the events. They're just convinced. Uh, When do you think these sorts of campaigns cross the line into cancellation territory?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's when individuals are, Denied the opportunity to have a platform to share their ideas. That's that's a dangerous precedent to be set because there are a number of different forces that can be levied on on uh, groups to force them or put them in, not force them but put them into a very difficult predicament where they have to choose uh, one artist over another, or do they have to do they have to make decisions based on economic you know reasons, it, especially when we're dealing with art. And I think, uh, you know, I think we can consider Dave Chappelle like an artist, but also I understand that it's also a business, especially on Netflix side. So i probably not giving the best answer here, but I think it's just the, the my my fallback is don't if you don't like it, don't listen, find something else. Um, it's it's the equivalent of mute of the mute button on Twitter. Um, just don't listen. Find something else that will take your time. There's not there's no need to censor or to limit what other people can can consume. And I think that's my major issue with it is that individuals are making decisions essentially on behalf of others by putting companies in the position where they have to make a decision regarding um, artists or employees that they support.
2: OK. Um, similarly, others may say cancellation is nothing more than accountability. Does this argument carry water with you, or is this just kind of a convenient rhetorical turn?
0: Well. Yeah, there should be a, there should be accountability, but I think it seems like a lot of the accountability accountability today is so draconian in nature. It seems like the the, the first step is always to uh, to move to take away someone's livelihood or someone's job, uh, and I don't know I don't know where that comes from. I, I think there there should be accountability, and there can be accountability. Um, maybe the another frustrating part is a lot of times. The punishment prevents there from being any growth or any kind of self-reflection on the positions that the individuals themselves might take. Apologies, for instance, are often scoffed at. You know, as there like sometimes I feel like it's worse to apologize because then the apology itself is picked apart, uh, and then you know th- then the controversy just explodes even more. Uh, I-, I think at times we need to do a better job of, of showing grace uh, and understanding that people make mistakes and people grow and without, without really almost yearning for the satisfaction of exposing and shaming and punishing others. I think there's just a whole lot of that that happens unnecessarily.
2: Yeah, doing my research for my little uh, opening essay and I'm preparing to teach the Scarlet Letter for the first time in quite a while. Uh, Puritans are on my mind <laughs> right now. Yeah. So I, I can't help but think that we're living in some sort of new Puritan age um, in a way. Uh, and that lack of uh, redemption that you just uh, spoke of right now um, really speaks to that, that, that fire and brimstone punishment rather than uh, growth, um, you know. Uh, I think is maybe a dangerous thing to have unleashed onto the culture um myself
0: yeah i've um, I've made the point that of all the books that I teach, I think the scarlet letter might be in my American lit class, I think the scar letter might be the oldest one, and I think it if it, it might be the most uh the most topical uh the most uh important one that I teach today because i I agree exactly what you say i think the the scenes that we see in that novel where we see these hypocritical Puritan officials. And the people of the community shaming publicly uh, Hester Prynne for committing a sin that they themselves or uh, that they themselves probably committed themselves, or if not this particular sin, some other sin. And this idea that you know punishment has to be public—it's um, very puritanical.
2: Yeah, I'm going to try to convince my students that it is uh, the most relevant book that they'll read, but yeah. we'll see how that goes. <laughs>
0: One of my students um, brought up one of my students brought up when we read it this year that Hester Prim she's and she used a very contemporary phrase uh, was slut shamed. Uh, and I think that's a, yeah. a I was really happy that the student brought up that point because I think that's exactly what we see happening to uh, to Hester Pryn, um in the novel.
2: Yeah, those connections are always interesting how they come out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just one more uh, devil's advocate question here. Uh, another common argument against those who would bemoan the effects of cancel culture is that the targets of these sorts of campaigns rarely actually remain canceled. Uh, what are your thoughts on this argument?
0: Well, that's probably when it comes down to the semantics of what does it mean to be canceled. And I guess uh, I, I guess cancellation doesn't have to be permanent, but just because something isn't permanent doesn't mean it's not harsh or not um, or it uh, or detrimental. Um, and so, sure, there are plenty of, of examples where uh, individuals uh, have been "quote unquote" canceled, but they have come back in a certain given amount of time um, and recaptured some of their previous position. But I still doesn't—I I still don't think that that doesn't mean that they weren't canceled. And I think it's probably really easy to claim, oh, you know, in the long run they don't suffer that much uh, until you yourself are the subject of of this type of target, I just I think it's just really easy to claim that. So, sure, there are, there are plenty of individuals who aren't permanently canceled, but I don't think that negates this idea that the cancel culture does exist.
2: Yeah, and the, the convincing argument that I've seen levied against that charge is that there's this freezing effect. Um, you know, Dave Chappelle survives cancellation, J.K. Rowling does, uh, you know survives cancellation. But the culture still exists, and people that don't have the means that they have, um, you know, don't necessarily want to speak up because they do, they wouldn't be able to survive uh, some sort of uh, trial like that. Um, yeah, so that's that freezing effect, I think, the, people oftentimes forget the culture uh, side of the cancel culture is that it's in the culture to, you know chase people away and, and shame them and all that. Uh, and that's, that's affecting everybody. I would say, I do have a question here from, uh, Tom Rogers, uh, says there has, to be a line somewhere. Uh, where is that line? Do you think in education? I think what he's asking is, is there a clear line that a teacher or some other, um, educational figure can cross, uh, that, you know, deserves for them to be canceled?
0: Oh yeah, of course. Um, but, it's, again, this is probably tough to talk about without specific examples, right? And that's why I think, you know, that's why I think policies that are enacted from outside of an organization are generally unhelpful. And I think that's kind of where the right is um, is wrong. I think the right generally uses electoral politics. Uh, they pass restrictive laws. And frankly, I don't want politicians and governmental agencies deciding what we're not allowed to read and teach in Schools—that that's just never a good thing. Um, So I think the more localized these decisions can be made um, by teachers themselves uh, and by administrators and school systems themselves, uh, the better these policies can be. But yeah, there's definitely lines that can easily be be crossed. Um, But it is hard to it it is hard to talk about them uh, in the general sense.
2: Right. So more specific cases would you know have to be thought about uh, as they come. Okay, Matt, uh, I'm going to take a short break for news and be right back with you, and we'll uh, discuss some cheerier topics when we come back. So I'm going to question you about some teaching methods, uh, the importance of the classics, and canon chat as well. So I'll be back with you shortly.
0: All right, sounds great.
1: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
4: In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is facing demands to drop her £300,000 scheme to cut the bottom off doors, aimed at improving ventilation to combat Covid-19. Asbestos experts have warned that the plan could expose pupils and teachers to deadly dust. A 2019 report revealed that about 1,600 Scottish schools still have asbestos fixtures and fittings including fire doors asbestos was banned in 1999 director of action on asbestos phyllis craig said asbestos can be found within doors and in different areas in schools and i would sincerely hope that this is taken into consideration before any work is carried out schools are required to have had a survey to identify the presence of any asbestos hold a register of the whereabouts of any asbestos and have a plan to manage asbestos. My question is, does the Scottish Government know if schools meet these requirements before any work is carried out? If not, I'd be concerned asbestos may be disturbed during the process of cutting the doors. Asbestos exposure can have health consequences decades after exposure and this needs to be recognised and treated with the seriousness that it merits. After safety concerns were raised, Education Secretary Shirley-Ann Somerville appeared to back away from plans, but they have not officially been dropped. A Scottish Government spokesman appeared to pass responsibility on to the local authorities saying, there is no such plan. It is for local authorities to decide what measures they take to improve ventilation in schools.
2: Welcome back everyone. I've been here chatting with English teacher and host of Canon Chat, Matt Ryan. Uh, now, Matt, if I recall correctly, you have an interesting method for teaching literature to your students. Uh, can you take me through a typical lesson you might do with your students as you're reading a book?
0: Sure. Um, so I will assign a book. Uh, I will assign a certain number of pages for the students to read uh, per night. Uh, that varies depending on the level of the student uh, and also on the the difficulty of the text itself. Uh, when they come to class the next the next day, I open class with a short, uh, I call them reading checks. They're just reading quizzes, six to eight questions. Uh, that's, the point of these is simply to hold them accountable for the reading uh, because many English teachers know, many teachers know, uh, that students uh, will fake read, right? Or skim their way through assigned materials or go to su- summary sites. Uh, and get by without reading. So the, the point of these, quiz, these quizzes are simply to make sure the students can't do that. So the questions themselves are really specific in nature. Um, I look at summary sites to make sure the students can't use the summary sites to answer the questions. Uh, we, so we, we begin with that, it takes two to three minutes. Uh, it, it then serves as a nice summary point for the beginning of class as we go over the answers to the quiz. So that serves as a chapter of the, uh, excuse me, a summary of the chapters that we have read. Uh, and then from there, we generally will go on and have a discussion uh, on the book itself. Um, oftentimes, I'll have specific things about the selection that I'll want to point out to the students. But very often, uh, it's the students themselves who are making observations uh, and analyzing the uh, different points of the night, the nightly reading. Uh, and that's a, that's a typical class, uh, when it comes to studying literature.
2: Right. So it sounds very simple. I mean, I think we tend to complicate English lessons, um, to the nth degree, uh, sometimes, especially, uh, right now with a lot of the push for cog sci and, uh, you know, other, uh, scientifically backed methods of teaching and everything like that, which I, I, you know, uh, in my own classrooms and everything. But it sounds to me like you really, the book is the thing for you. You know, you center your class around that book. Um, you make sure that the kids read it and then you talk about it. Um, do you, uh, have, you know, a particular, uh, discussion, you know, uh, technique that you use, do you Socratic seminar or fishbowl or something like that?
0: Not necessarily. Um, uh, generally, um, it will be a full class discussion uh, unless uh, I feel like there are particular, um, you know, segments of the book that I want them to discuss specifically. Then I might break them up into groups and assign each group a, pic- a particular segment of the reading. But no, for the most part, it, like you said, it's pretty simple. There's nothing really, there's nothing really profound or difficult about it. It really is just us having a a class discussion where the students are really talking to each other Is is as, mu- as well as talking to me about the book that we're, we're reading. Um, and it's interesting because whenever I mention that I quiz my students, it really elicits like this strong uh, feed, like this response. And oftentimes it's negative. Like this idea of like, it's killing the student's love of reading to quiz them and the, and it shouldn't take uh, the, 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 Reading should be or the motivation for reading should be intrinsically uh, it should come be intrinsic and shouldn't be extrinsic But my response is when i when I first implemented these quizzes, nothing changed my classes more profoundly than these quizzes because then all of a sudden the kids were actually reading the books. And what they found is when they're actually reading the book, they generally actually like what they're reading, and the classroom discussions, just took off uh, because the students weren't just relying on the summary sites just to spit pa- spit back information that they had read. They were actually responding to specific details in the text, and it's it's it was so rewarding. And so this idea that that they shouldn't need a, a quiz to motivate them to read, well, sure, but I think we all respond. Um, I think we all respond uh, to accountability. And if the end product is that my students actually read the books, uh, right. then I'm willing to, I'm willing to go that route every time.
2: And I, I tend to find that the extrinsic becomes intrinsic at a certain point. Uh, you we know, get them started and then uh, there's a sort of inertia that that picks up there and then they they want to read it. You know, these these books that we read in class are hopefully good books, which are interesting. Uh, and the more they get into it, you know, the more they want to keep on reading. Um, you know, I I know that you teach a lot of classics. Uh, you mentioned the relevance of, um, of the scholar letter earlier today. Um, is relevance important to you? And if so, uh, why not adult young adult literature or, uh, YA literature?
0: Uh, it can be important, uh, I don't think everything that uh, they read has to be relevant, and I guess what 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 I'm saying or what I mean by relevant is relevant to the to themselves as individuals um, that's actually one of my one of my criticisms or one of my pushbacks against the idea is that students should like self select all their all their reading uh, because I think generally students are going to select things that they're comfortable with or things that are in their wheelhouse not always but for the most part that's what they'll do which i think means that everything that they choose to read will be immediately and easily relevant to themselves and i think it's really important for us to expose students to things that don't at least on the surface appear immediately relevant and then maybe the most rewarding part is then if you can show that there is a connection or there is a relevance to them as readers that they didn't see at first. I think that's you know I think that can be the most rewarding aspect.
2: Yeah, it would be a strange student that would decide on their own uh, maybe to pick up a Hawthorne novel, <laughs> um, right?
0: And I've had plenty of students say, and this is a, a common refrain. One of the so after we finish our our book the very last thing we do is I have the students go around and it's a, little, uh, it's, a, it's a little clunky at times but I just have them give the book a rating from one to five. And I don't really care as much about the number is then they also have to provide an explanation as why they rated it as they did. And so many students have said, I never would have chosen this as a book to read myself, but I ended up really liking it. And, and to me, that's a huge win.
2: So I and some of the people uh, kind of in our mutual circle, uh, tend to like to make fun of YA literature. We talk about the merit of YA uh, versus Shakespeare and stuff like that. Sure. Do you take a hard line uh, on YA? Does it belong in the classroom at all?
0: So the irony is, I, I, I don't think I do. If anything, I think the I hate talking about sides, but I think the other side takes that uh, that harder line. Uh, maybe that's my bias, but I've seen plenty of teachers basically say. Um, here are the books that we read in our class and discuss and celebrate. Look what we don't have. Look what's not pictured. Any of the classics. Um, I'm not opposed to YA at all. In fact, I use some of my YA titles. I use them with my freshman students. I think they can be great scaffolding books uh, to uh, to more complex pieces of literature. And I think even, so that statement itself is going to offend some people because I seem to be implying that YA books aren't as serious as um, as adult literature. But I think, I think if we're being honest, one of the one of the criteria of what a, why a novel is, is that as far as prose complexity goes, they're simpler. It doesn't mean the topics that they address aren't important. It doesn't mean the subjects that they tackle aren't aren't important, but just the the complexity themselves uh, is lesser for the most part than adult literature. So. I don't think it's acceptable for students to graduate high school only being able to handle YA literature. I think if we if, if that's the case, we failed them. I, I think students have to be able to to grapple with literature beyond young adult literature. It doesn't mean they can't read it. Uh, they can certainly read it. They can. I know my students uh, often will be reading YA outside of the classroom, but. Uh, i i I really think at some point and i don't know when that is and it probably depends on the level of the student um we have to move past ya so i think middle grades awesome that's that to me that's the perfect place for ya um Mm -hmm. like i said i use it in my with my freshman students but beyond that i'm really i'm really looking for adult titles
2: yeah i had uh got to some similar territory with uh daniel buck last week uh talking about classics and and all of this and i I really like the analogy, uh, the evolutionary analogy of these texts that are classics that have been around for so long. They've proven themselves to be fit in some sort of way, right? They have uh, issues which are endearing. They have themes which are, um, you know, true over vast swaths of time. Uh, and they've gone through this process where they've been tested against other texts, and they're the ones that last. Um, also, you know, if you, if you read E.D. Hirsch, you know about cultural literacy and all of these you know, current texts, they reach backwards to the older texts. There's this intertextuality that happens where if you don't have that foundation of classical literature of, you know, some of the more uh, famous works, if you don't know the Bible, Shakespeare, Homer's Odyssey, stuff like that, then you can't understand, um, you know, various aspects of much of contemporary literature. So that's the argument that I keep making. I'll probably put it in writing at some point and, you know, like 12 people will read it. But <laughs> that's, you know, I, I do think that there's real value in, in in teaching older works and these newer works that we have. They might turn out to be as valuable. Who knows? John Green might be studied, you know, 100 years from now. Um, but We don't know that right now because we don't have a time machine what we do have is we have a a time machine that looks backward it's called history uh so we know what lasted from those periods and i think it's important to keep those alive um so um yeah
0: i I agree if i I could just add on to that i think uh, a great example i give i give my students an essay by c.s lewis and he 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 says basically he says "I, i don't want to wish the ordinary reader to read no modern books um but i'm pretty much paraphrasing here but if if he has to read only one, I would always advise him to choose the old. And in explaining that, Lewis says that well, just as you said, a new book is still on trial, uh, and we're not mm-hmm. in the position to judge it. And often, uh, it, it takes time, right, it, it, before we're able to judge uh, judge the, the the greatness of of a modern book. But I but I also like the fact that he says he he would never he would never tell. reader to not read modern books but also at the same point don't dismiss the old
2: right and i think because as we mentioned it would take a strange student to seek out hawthorne you know um i was that strange student by the way that was me so you know for whatever that's worth but i think teachers have a duty to you know um do something for students that they wouldn't do on their own um, and you know, perhaps introducing them to some of these timeless works is part of that duty, or at least I consider it to be part of mine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: so this is uh, a good, good transition really to my last topic, which is Canon Chat. Uh, so you host Canon Chat uh, on Twitter. I, I keep on meaning to uh, participate myself. Haven't made it yet, but I, I probably will if you make it on that Ulysses promise. Um, I was wondering, uh, can you explain for those of us who are uninitiated just exactly what Canon Chat
0: is? Absolutely. It's just a, it's a very, I don't want to say informal, but it's a, a, a low stakes um, Twitter-based online chat in which we um, will read uh, a book usually one, once a month. Uh, and then uh, on scheduled Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time, we have a pre-selected list of questions, usually five or six questions uh, that each of us will respond to. But what I find is maybe the best part of those chats comes from all of like the, the, I don't want to say the side conversations, but all of the offshoots that come from those questions. It's funny because I always kind of like, I always like worry and stress over the questions. And as I design them and I want to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm hitting the most important aspects of all the group uh, of the book. Uh, but then every time uh, there's no need to worry because the, the, the discussions always kind of take a life of their own. Um, and the books that we read, I choose, some of them but also uh the the group members choose them uh we typically just kind of vote on them and the the highest vote getter is the book that we're going to read um and it's really great because i i started because i was really pushing back against this idea that the canon is just a bunch of dead white men uh of who wrote books that don't resonate with readers today and so i wanted to show that wasn't the case so i think we're on our 31st book and i think if listeners uh, go to the website which is canonchat.com uh there's a a selection um, page where you can see all the selections that we've read and i and you'll see there's there's great diversity in the selections that we've read um, so uh, yeah it's a, it's it's really become just like a labor of love now and it's on those days where twitter gets really frustrating and i'm i'm ready to walk away from it it's twitter it's a uh, Canon chat that that keeps me coming back for more.
2: Right. And you, you touched on something there that I've appreciated from afar is uh, not only do you defend the Canon, but you are a proponent of diversifying the Canon. Uh, you know, just having um, casually seen some of the, the, um, the titles that you've, you've done in the past. Um, it seems like that is part of, Uh, what you want to do as well so a lot of times I see some criticism about you know what the canon is and it seems like you think that the canon is uh much more wide open than maybe somebody would have thought you know 30 40 years ago
0: right that's the thing I think this is uh, I think some people have this idea that this canon is just this static thing and it's just it's just not true it's uh it's forever changing and it's always it's always evolving and rich I think we have to be aware that rich voices and or diverse voices and rich literature aren't exclusive things. There, uh, but at the same time, I, I, you can't deny that. Especially the further we go back in history, uh, the Western canon is going to be very white. But that's just because, well, that's the society that those works came out of, and those societies, you know, were, did favor white men and did overlook other voices. Uh, but it doesn't mean that that the the work in the canons themselves aren't worth reading and not worth um, discussing
2: right so what motivated you to start canon chat was it just because you were starting to be kind of annoyed with (laughs) some of the you know discussion that that goes on or or what passes as discussion or were you thinking you know i really want to read this book but i don't have anyone around me right now why don't i use twitter as a nice kind of uh step into you know finding other people to read this or just what, what motivated you to start something like that
0: yeah, it probably was a little bit of both, right? It it it's it's probably not coincidental that Canon Chat kicked off in March of twenty twenty, right when kind of the pandemic, you know, started full swing. Um, and that's book...
2: when I joined Twitter.
0: <laughs> Perfect, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, you can, I can't ignore that. Um, and actually, the very first book we read was The Plague, and that was, you know, that seemed very <laughs> topical. Um, but at the same time, no, it definitely was in response, just growing this growing frustration with. response especially from teachers that the classics we we have to kind of start pushing the classics aside uh and we have to start uh reading books that are more contemporary and i'm hopeful and some teachers have told me this i'm hopeful that teachers might see these discussions that we're having and hopefully and i and i also put a lot of uh, material uh, on the website itself i'm hoping that the teachers will see us having these conversations and realize that no there is relevance uh, and there is importance to teaching these great works of literature and we shouldn't just brush them aside because um they're old great literature doesn't have an expiration date i remember there was another tweet that came out it basically uh it basically said something to the effect of do you all know that most of the classics were written more than 50 years ago like it's time to update our curriculums and uh And of course, most of the great books were written more than 50 years ago. We've been, you know, we've been writing great literature now for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the idea, the implication there seemed to be that literature has an expiration date. And, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't more strongly disagree with that.
2: Right. It's evergreen. Right. Um, One last question. Um, Would you consider Canon chat to be helpful to you as an educator? And if so, in what ways?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think more than one people person has said it, that sometimes our best PD uh, uh, are, you know, the the connections and the discussions that we have on Twitter or uh, on social media. Um, and I, the people in Canon chat are so brilliant and thoughtful uh, and kind. And I've learned so much uh, from, from interacting with them that's why this is and it's very much selfish on my part um people say well why do you take the time to do this you don't get compensated for it uh, yeah i i absolutely get compensated for it because i get to spend you know an hour of my time with you know other brilliant readers and i get to learn from them mm-hmm. I'm, I'm their student um and it, it's great so i encourage everyone to, to check us out <laughs>
2: that is awesome we'll we'll start with me and then see if anybody else joins too
0: absolutely we are going to do this Ulysses that's kind of been my that's been my white whale right that that I've always been kind of intimidated by Ulysses and so uh, again selfishly I'm gonna I'm gonna recruit as many people as possible Uh, I'm gonna and I'm gonna get them to pull me through uh, through this text
2: perfect if nothing else it's accountability to finally finish it
0: right there you go accountability
2: all right Well, Matt, uh, thank you for talking to me today. Uh, can you just quickly tell listeners where they can find you and, uh, once again, just let them know how they can participate in Canon chat if they're interested.
0: Sure. Uh, so my Twitter handle is at Matt Ryan, E L a teach and it's one T so it's M a T R Y a N E L a teach. Um, Canon chat is really easy to find. It's just www.canonchat.com. Uh, we, we discuss under the Canon chat hashtag. So um, that's an easy way to find us on, on Twitter. And I think there's also a, a spot on the website that basically says I'm interested uh, and it links you to a form where you can just put in your name, your Twitter handle. And then whenever I announce a new book, I'll be, I'll be sure to, uh, to notify you.
2: All right, perfect, Matt. Thanks again for joining me today. And um, it's been a lot of fun and I will see you on the interwebs.
0: All right. Thanks for having me. This is, this is great.
2: Good. Bye now. All right. We will be right back after today's teacher tech tips.
4: In Northern Ireland, legal action has forced education chiefs into a U-turn and a return to rules, which were in place last autumn, which allowed any teacher who qualified in the south to immediately register with the general teaching council for Northern Ireland. Kirsty McGrath, who graduated in Dublin last summer, took action after rules were changed and Michelle McElveen classed teachers from the Republic of Ireland as rest of the world, resulting in a lengthy wait. Miss McGrath, through her solicitors, wrote to the Department of Education, outlining their intention to seek a judicial review and as a result was added to the Northern Ireland Teacher Register last week. Patrick Higgins, solicitor, welcomed the decision saying the failure of the Department of Education to process Ms McGrath's application is unlawful and unreasonable. With a teacher shortage in Northern Ireland this continued delay is impacting pupils, schools and teachers. Although it was named in legal papers, The Department of Education has denied it, or Minister McElveen, has any role on determining who can be a teacher in Northern Ireland. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
1: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
5: Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using Digital Link instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine, even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. For this week's visual version, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute
1: Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
2: This has been James A. Fury for Teachers Talk Radio. I wanna thank Matt Ryan for joining me today and everyone who tuned in to listen to tonight's Late Late Show. You can follow Teachers Talk Radio on social media at T-T-R-A-D-I-O 2022. That's t radio 2022. You can find me on Twitter at James A. Fury. That's James A-F-U-R-E-Y. Make sure to listen again next week when I'll be talking with teacher and author Eric Collins. Be well, everyone, and goodbye until then.
1: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio.